Welcome to the Barrier Breakdown, Disrupting Mental Health Podcast, where we talk about the clinical and practical issues that face those working in the mental health industry. Welcome everyone to the Barrier Breakdown, Disrupting Mental Health. My name is Erin Mullen O'Bailey. I am the Chief Operating Officer at Cognitive Behavior Institute and my co-host, Dr. Kevin Caridad, who is the owner and CEO of Cognitive Behavior Institute. On this week's episode, we have with us Matt Lampert, who is the director of the Socionomics Institute, a research center that uses data on social mood to understand and anticipate cultural trends and social events. He is a graduate of the University of Cambridge, whose research has been supported by the National Academy of Sciences with funds from the National Science Foundation. He is a contributing author to the book, Socionomic Casualty in Politics, a number one Amazon bestseller in behavioral psychology and the editor-in-chief of the monthly magazine, The Socionomist. Welcome, Matt. We're very excited to have you here with us today. Um, We'd like to get started by um, perhaps having you uh, share with our listeners today, what is socionomics? Sure. So socionomics is all about the relationship between social mood and social behavior, social trends. Usually when people think about the relationship between social psychology, how society is feeling, we tend to think that social events and trends impact and direct our social mood. So you'll hear people say like maybe a, a positive economic report comes out and economists will say, well, surely that will make the society more optimistic or maybe a, a a negative event happens. Maybe there's some sort of natural disaster and people say, oh, well, that would make society more pessimistic and fearful. And what we do in socionomics is we flip this causality on its head because social events, events that are caused by people anyway, they have to come from somewhere and they come from people who have feelings. And so if you know how people are feeling in a society, then you have a leg up on understanding and anticipating the kinds of things that society is likely to do. So if social mood is becoming more positive, that society is likely going to be becoming more optimistic, more upbeat. And you'll see signs of that throughout the society and culture, whether it's in fashion or politics or uh, entertainment, trends in business. And when society is becoming more pessimistic, when that mood's becoming more negative, then you see signs of that in society as well. And those trends start to go in the opposite direction. So we try to keep our finger on the pulse of social mood, and we use that to understand and anticipate social behavior. Wonderful. Um, How did you first get started in socionomic theory? Well, so much of socionomics sits at the intersection of social psychology, history, financial markets, and current events. And if I had to make a list of uh, three or four things that I'm really interested in, it would be all of the things on that list. And, And that's been true since I was a teenager. But I stumbled into the field basically by accident. When I was in high school, I played drums in a rock band and we used to practice at the bass player's house. And one day at band practice, we were uh, covering a song and we needed to look up some lyrics on the internet. So we went into the uh, the home office uh, at the bass player's house. I'm looking around and on the wall, there's pictures of uh, 
articles from the Wall Street Journal, from Barron's Magazine, from Forbes, all about the bass player's dad. And I thought, who the heck is this guy? What is he doing uh, in all of these uh, magazines? What's up with that? And it turns out that the bass player was Elliot Prechter. His father is Robert Prechter, who's the founder of socionomic theory. And I started talking to him about the theory, got really interested in it, ended up going to work for him in high school. And I've just been becoming even more interested in the field ever since. Now, I originally also found out uh, through socionomics, through Bob Prichter and Elliot, uh, Elliot Wave, uh, early on in, in the 2000s, I think where I was hooked was following for a bit of a year, not really doing anything, but seeing the setup for 2008 and how uh, many didn't see that, but was very kind of, uh, I think I was prepared well and kind of handled that in a way that I think many didn't. Uh, and so I was hooked there. And then the interesting piece is some of the books, uh, uh, I think it's following the wave, uh, the new, the new, uh, science of socionomics, it just really was interesting to me. And that's why all that's going on around the world and so many examples, I think in 2019 and early 2021, uh, because our interest obviously is behavioral health. And I feel oftentimes we want to be able to mitigate that. Can you talk a little bit more uh, to bring it home for the novices who just about everybody who's gonna be watching this about kind of how do you go about measuring social mood? How do you look into those keys? Uh, and then how do, you know, what's the larger macro impact on uh, the general society, the world, and ultimately, how does that you think to the individual is going to see, you know, rates of mental health related issues from diagnoses, suicide and all that, I think, and, and, and addiction, because I can remember uh, way back when a lot of talk from RN Elliot, or I should say Elliot Wave about legalization of marijuana a decade, at least or more before that was even a whisper. And so all that where I, I wasn't surprised, it just uh, but very interesting how socionomics can predict these kind of things. So I'm very interested to hear a lot of uh, concrete uh, kind of examples for the individuals listening today. Perfect. Yes, that book you mentioned, The Wave Principle of Human Social Behavior, that was the first book on socionomics that I read as well. It came out in 1999 uh, by Robert Prechter. And in that book, Prechter makes the argument that one of the best ways, in fact, the best way that we know of to track social mood in real time is to use the stock market. A lot of people try to track mood in a, social mood in a number of different ways. They'll try to do it by maybe surveys, consumer confidence, economic confidence indexes. Some people use sentiment data generated by what people are posting on social media. Uh, and we think all of those things are interesting. They're interesting indicators, they're useful, but none of them have all of the traits in a good measure of social mood that the stock market has. So one of the interesting things about the stock market is that it's an arena where people have been expressing their change in optimism and pessimism going back centuries. So we have the data going back in some countries to the late 1600s. So it's a, a tool that we can use to back test the theory. Not only that, with the stock market, you have real-time updates. Whenever the stock market's open, you get a new data point. If you're using a survey, you got to go and survey a bunch of people and then amalgamate those results and publish them. And by the time you get the data, it might be hours later, or a day later, sometimes a week or a month later. Well, with the stock market, you get instantaneous updates. The other interesting thing about the stock market is it's quite responsive to these changes in social mood. So when mood becomes, let's say, more positive, some people can express that by going out and starting a business, say, whereas other people express it by bidding up 
the price of a stock. Well, the people who do it by trading a stock are done in a matter of seconds, maybe a minute or two. Whereas if you're expressing that positive mood at the same time by going out and opening a business, it might take you months to execute that decision. You might have to design a product or service, hire staff. And by the time you get that business up and running, it could be months later. And that, in our view, is why data like uh, economic growth tend to lag the stock market. That's one reason why the stock market is, a, is an excellent leading economic indicator. And it turns out it's a great indicator for a number of other areas of society and culture, including several in the area of health, which I understand is, a, is, is an area you're, you're, of course, interested in. And this was particularly useful for us in 2020. A few years ago, some colleagues and I did a study on the history of social mood, stock market performance, and outbreaks of epidemic disease. And we went all the way back to the cholera epidemics in London in the 1800s. And one of the things we found was that the stock market has historically been an excellent early warning indicator for an elevated risk of major infectious disease outbreaks, particularly these periods of negative social mood indicated by significant downward moves in the market, often the period near the low, that negative extreme in the market, that negative extreme in mood is where society can be the most susceptible to these sorts of outbreaks. And you see it in uh, the London cholera outbreaks in the 1800s, but you see it throughout history uh, as well, whether that's Spanish flu in the early 1900s, whether it's uh, the AIDS epidemic breaking out after a 16-year bear market or toward the end of a 16-year bear market in PPI-adjusted terms. And we saw it again in the coronavirus uh, outbreak, the COVID-19 outbreak as well. We find the relationship is most reliable in the country where the epidemic emerged. So in this case, that would be China. And it's important to understand that China had been in a bear market for more than a decade, actually more than a dozen years before the outbreak of that epidemic. It wasn't the case that the epidemic happened and then Chinese stocks went down. Chinese stocks had been going net down. Social mood in China had, be, uh, had been becoming more negative and toward that negative extreme, that's when there was a major infectious disease outbreak. Now, of course, we live in a globalized society, so a disease can break out somewhere and then spread all over the world, and that's what happened here. But we thought it was interesting, even in the US, if you study the data on COVID-19 infections, that initial surge in infections happened basically coincident with a negative mood extreme in the market. The market peaked uh, on February 12th, made a low, uh, by late March. And while COVID cases were screaming higher, so were stocks. And this was puzzling to mainstream analysts on Wall Street. They said, what in the world is going on? We have this major infectious disease outbreak, and yet the stock market's just, just rallying like crazy. But for a sociologist, this makes sense because the stock market is a leading indicator. That fall in the market's indicating a, a surge in epidemic risk. Indeed, the epidemic takes hold. Uh, but that higher trend in the market, that movement higher was a sign that social mood was likely to become more positive. It was, it was a sign that at least 
in terms of some of the most severe economic data that we were seeing was likely going to improve in the coming months. And indeed, as the market went higher, that economic data began to improve as well. And some of the other downstream effects throughout society are still kind of working their way through the system. But that's one of the ways that you can make sense of these rather jarring news and events from a socioeconomic perspective that would be difficult to do from a mainstream perspective, because these things wouldn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Now, in terms of mental health, that's a very interesting, very interesting area, because social mood trends impel a series of emotions in people. So when social mood is positive, the public is more inclined to be uh, more optimistic, more confident, more resilient, uh, more inclusive, more tolerant, uh, more inclined toward concord, say. And when that trend turns and when social mood becomes more negative, then all of those trends go in the opposite direction. And, and so society becomes more inclined toward discord and conflict and pessimism and fear. And so if you're in the mental health area, getting a leg up on the societal sources of some of these dramatic shifts in emotion can be useful because you might have folks coming in uh, you know, whose, whose mental disposition seems to have changed rather dramatically. And it might be difficult to work out a source for that locally. But if you understand, okay, but this is a, a member of society. And if society is becoming more pessimistic, becoming more fearful, then it would make sense that individuals within that society would likewise have some of those same predispositions at these changes in social moods. So you can be more prepared for those kinds of developments in your practice. In general, uh, you know, what is the future looking like from, uh, and I don't know if you could talk a little bit more about measuring in, uh, in fractal patterns and, and, and how that is helpful in identifying and measuring. And then ultimately, you know, what does it look like now from what, uh, how you go about measuring markets as a reflection of, I call the, the mood temperature, that's a thermometer of social mood. And then, you know, what does that look like uh, First, I think speaking, I think it'd be interesting since it's timely, what's going on with the uh, country, both with the social, just, social justice issues that are going on, the political, the economic, as well as what does the future hold for those that are in behavioral health as a result of you know, suicidality rates, addiction uh, rates, uh, mental health rates in general? What's the expectation about and all that? I'd really appreciate your feedback on that. Sure, I'll start with the end of the question first and then maybe work, work uh, our way back. You had asked earlier about... Uh, marijuana legalization and and uh, other forms of, of of drug legalization perhaps so let's let's start there sure. back in 2009 a colleague at the socioeconomics institute ewan wilson did a study of a hundred year history of the social stance toward marijuana because there have been periods in history where society has been rather tolerant of marijuana use and periods in history where uh, America has, has uh, had the opposite approach. And one of the things he found, in fact, his main finding in that study was that when mood is becoming quite positive, when we get particularly in a period near positive mood extremes, we tend to see 
a greater social intolerance toward marijuana and marijuana use, marijuana legalization. Now, this is different from rates of use. We're not talking about the rates of use. We're talking about society's stance toward those who use marijuana. Are they rather permissive or do they feel more inclined to crack down? Whereas when social mood is more negative, there can be windows of opportunity for a relaxation and restrictions on marijuana use and and even decriminalization, legalization, that sort of thing. So this was a, uh, an interesting finding for uh, Ewan when he found this. He was writing in 2009, and he had just lived through the financial crisis. And, the, and so he started to wonder, would there be a window of opportunity fairly soon for an unwinding of, a further unwinding of uh, restrictive laws on marijuana? And indeed, it takes, you know, in government, sometimes it, it takes a million years to do one thing. Well, it took, uh, it took a few years, but in 2012, states started to legalize that infrastructure that they built up in 2008, 2009, 2010, 2011, when we still had a lot of residual uh, negative mood out there, ended up being an important springboard. And we've seen a number of states legalized since then, both on the recreational and medical side. But yet at the federal level, marijuana still is prohibited. And our take on this is that it will have the best chance to lose at least its schedule one status uh, when mood does become more negative. We think there will be a significant window of opportunity for that to happen. It wouldn't be surprising uh, if it did, but that's been something that's puzzling. That's puzzled folks in the movement to legalize marijuana. They say, gosh, if you look at polls, if you look at surveys, it looks like uh, a majority of Americans seem to be in favor of legalization. So why hasn't it happened federally? And from a socioeconomic perspective, we just haven't had quite the right moment for that to occur. But we may end up getting there sooner rather than later. We'll see. Uh, now, as to how we measure social mood, particularly uh, how, how do we how do we understand its fluctuations from positive to negative? You mentioned, uh, you mentioned fractal patterns. Indeed, uh, one of the insights of, of, of Robert Prechter is, is that social mood is patterned. And that's a tremendous insight to have. Uh, and, and he proposes uh, that the, the, the most probable pattern is that it's patterned according to a model called the Elliott Wave model, the Elliott Wave principle. This was a model of financial markets that was proposed by an American theorist in the 1930s who studied uh, stock market action and identified that the stock market was a fractal. He didn't have the word fractal back then. It hadn't been coined, but this is essentially what he found. A fractal is, is an object that essentially uh, repeats on all scales. It's either, it's, it's uh, self-similar at all scales. And so uh, with the Elliott wave pattern, which is basically a pattern of, of five waves or, uh, or fluctuations that make net progress in one direction, followed by three waves that make net progress in the opposite direction. And this pattern repeats on all scales. And one of the beautiful things about the Elliott Wave model is that if you can identify where you are in the pattern, then you've got a chance to 
to, to see where you're likely to go next. And that's always probabilistic. Elioticians have made a number of just amazing calls and, and certainly several calls that haven't worked out so well. But when you can marry an accurate Elliott wave forecast with a socionomic forecast, then you can say, okay, let's say not only is social mood likely to become more negative, but when that happens, we're likely to see a number of significant ramifications of that in society. So society is likely to become more primed toward discord. Society is likely to become more primed toward conflict. Nations that used to get along with each other will have a harder time doing that. Communities that used to get along with each other will have a harder time doing that. Families, businesses that used to get along with each other. You see these breakdowns and alliances. You see more negative trends, more pessimistic trends in society and culture. So, uh, popular fashions get a little bit more, uh, get darker in color. Uh, you see horror movies and more pessimistic and uh, negative themes emerge in popular culture. Pop music becomes uh, harder edged, more pessimistic in tone. Think uh, the hard rock in the, the uh, in, in the 1960s bear market that by the end of that bear market had become punk music. Uh, or, or more recently, you can think about uh, groups like, uh, Limp Biscuit and corn that became popular uh, during that decline in the market in the wake of the dot-com bust from 2000 to 2002 and for a few years thereafter. So you can start to game plan for these trends in broader society if you can get a handle on uh, if you can get a handle on on where you are within that general Elliott wave structure. Now. Kevin, fortunately, in my line of work, I leave all of the Elliott Wave forecasting to the Elliott Wave analysts, and I am strictly a socionomist. So I don't forecast the indicator myself. I leave that to the Elliotticians, and then I use their forecasts to uh, anticipate these trends throughout broader society. So uh, you know, if you look around the financial markets, things tend to be quite frothy, and there are uh, plenty of elioticians who would, who would agree with that assessment that we're likely uh, nearing a positive uh, mood extreme. That's a probabilistic question. We'll see if that happens. But, uh, but if mood were to become more negative, the time to prepare for that is is before it happens. Because like so much in life, if you're not early, you're late. Uh, and so the kinds of precautions that one might take uh, in business or with one's own financial resources or with one's own strategy, a lot of those precautions take some time to implement and trying to implement them in the fog of a, a, a negative mood trend, a, a heightened period of, of social pessimism and unrest can be really difficult to do. And so, uh, and so the time to think about those things is, is now, is ahead of time. So you can be ready if the tide were to turn. You know, one of the things I've kind of used to conceptualize fractal patterns, because many, it's, it's a little bit abstract, is I use the analogy that I think I read in one of the books is uh, think of a tree. Uh, it's kind of these patterns of the trunks and twigs and, uh, and sticks of such are, are very similar, how they repeat at different sizes. And depending upon how large the fractal pattern is or how long the branch is, the more significant its impact. So as an, as an Elliott Wave uh, uh, subscriber for many years, it's, it's my understanding of, of the fractal patterns as such is that this is really low on the tree as far as the, the size of the pattern that's about to break at multiple levels. And from that perspective, it, it, what we've seen this year with increased political, social injustice, economic issues and the pandemic is huge increase, at least more than 40 percent for mental health related be, uh, uh, needs and, uh, and care. I will say the intensity of individuals that typically were doing well 
uh, are now kind of have, as I say, have lower level issues. Those that had lower level, moderate, moderate, severe and severe are impatient. Oftentimes I'm, I'm kind of seeing a lot of that. And so with that in mind, understanding the fractal patterns, potentially with many Elioticians, as you're describing, saying that, hey, we're, we're looking at a pattern here that may be ending at multiple levels, as long as the longest pattern may be several hundred years. Uh, and it's one degree bigger, as I've heard of explained, than the last Great Depression. If you want to think all that happened social politically during that time, this is one larger branch bigger, is my understanding. Uh, and if that's the case, what, what are some of the things from a socioeconomic perspective, if that were to pan out? Uh, that we could expect from society, politics, uh, all the things that we've been talking about. So understanding that that's may, at least from an Elliotician's perspective, may be in the cards here in the next uh, one to eight years. What do, what, do you, what do you say about that? Well, there's so many different ramifications of that, of such a change. So let's start by talking about a conceptual model that you could use to anticipate changes in a number of fields. And then maybe we could drill down and talk about a handful of fields in particular, some things we might see uh, if mood were to become significantly more negative. Uh, one way to think about it conceptually is just to think about all the changes that happened in 2020. And then imagine those changes on steroids. If, you, uh, if you've uh, been around enough and been kind of aware of what's going on to think back to 2007 to 2009 and the financial crisis and some of the cultural ramifications we saw there, not only in business, uh, but in other areas of society and culture, the financial markets, the economy. Uh, imagine that, but on steroids, if you can remember the dot-com bust of 2000 to 2002, again, those same sorts of ramifications. But one model that we used to think about these changes was developed by one of my colleagues at the uh, Institute, uh, former colleagues, Alan Hall, who, uh, thinks, uh, who kind of diagrammed these changes this way. I don't know if you've seen a Nolan chart. It's a, uh, it was created by a guy named David Nolan. It's just a way of representing the space of, uh, Nolan was talking about political ideas. So if you just imagine a diamond, say, and toward the top of the diamond, you might have uh, authoritarian views and toward the bottom, maybe a more libertarian views. And then on, and then you can imagine a left right axis on that as well. And it's just a way of thinking about where uh, you as an individual might fall in uh, on the political space in terms of your own views, or you could also think about Alan argued where society falls politically. So let's just imagine a society that's somewhere toward the center, say, hypothetically. Well, what happens in these negative mood trends is that consensus in that society, whatever that society considers to be normal, uh, whether it's in politics or in any other area, so uh, norms in terms of social values, shared social beliefs, shared social customs, the kinds of ideas that are permissible in the in the public square, let's say, uh, and, and even trends with the, or, or uh, agreements within a particular industry, you know, kind of the way that an industry does business. You could think about it. Basically, what happens in these negative social mood trends is that consensus, that understanding of what constitutes normal splinters and it breaks down. And this fracturing of consensus has so many consequences in a number of different fields. But if you can just imagine uh, a society where their conception of, of normal is changing and changing dramatically, we saw all sorts of examples of this in 2020. And what happens in those environments is that actors and ideas who who used to be at the fringes of the discourse suddenly find all sorts of adherence. So 
maybe in politics, it might be more extreme political voices. In art and design, it would be artists who used to be considered kind of French folks who may have been toiling away for obscurity for a long time. Suddenly, they're, they're revered and they found an audience and, and a lot of people uh, flock to, to see what they're doing. Uh, in business, it could be a, a certain management style that maybe uh, was kind of French, but suddenly it has adherence. So if you're the, the implication of this strategically is that if you are someone who's who's laboring uh, a, a little bit outside the mainstream, this is great news for you because you've got an opportunity to attract a greater audience. And then, of course, the the risk is that if you're someone whose whose livelihood kind of relies on that consensus holding it can be a, a time of tremendous risk if that rug gets pulled out from under you. So as this negative mood trend unfolds, society fractures. And instead of having one consensus, what you have is you have groups reforming near the poles, near the extremes. Negative mood is like a centrifuge that flings folks uh, to the outskirts of what used to be considered normal and permissible. And as that negative mood trend becomes more intense, these groups compete with each other for dominance. And by the time it reaches a negative extreme, uh, society begins to reform a new consensus somewhere farther from the center than wherever it was beforehand. And we can't say ahead of time which side is going to win. All we can say is that there's a huge window of opportunity for change, change in terms of uh, norms, values, beliefs, practices, uh, styles in the, in the entertainment and uh, in artistic spaces. And that there's a big window of opportunity for uh, for folks who want to enact dramatic change to do so. Sometimes that consensus ends up reforming, say, more toward freedom and individualism, which is what happened with the American Revolution, which occurred at the end of a more than six-decade negative social mood trend. Uh, but sometimes that consensus forms uh, at the other extreme, as we saw in the, in the, say, in the early 1930s in several European countries. So we can't say ahead of time who's going to come out on top. We can just say that it's, it's quite a dicey time. And if you're someone who would like to be engaged in, in affecting change. I mean, that's, that's the window of opportunity to, to act because uh, you're, you'll have a much greater chance of having your voice heard than when, uh, than when mood is trending more positively. Now, in terms of concrete ramifications of this, um, financially, we're looking, you would be looking at uh, severe declines in, in financial asset prices. You'd be looking at a tremendous upheaval in the economy in terms of the kinds of things that you might see in pop culture. Uh, as we said earlier, much darker themes, shocking horror movies would probably come to the fore. Uh, uh, you know, uh, much more negative themes in, in music uh, and in fashion as well. Uh, generally in society, there is a focus on fear and a loss of confidence in this kind of environment. And so if you as a service provider can figure out how to tailor your messaging and your services to cater to the psychological and tangible needs of someone who's going through this dramatic upheaval in their lives, where they have their sense of normal is fracturing, their society seems to be splintering all around them. Imagine the, the ramifications that we'll see in terms of, of mental health. It seems quite dramatic, but at least being prepared for for this and being aware of the broader social transition that's happening during that time might give you a leg up on understanding what's happening. And, and perhaps, uh, I don't know, I mean, this is, this is your field, but, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, more effectively dealing with, with that problem and serving, and serving the people who come through your, your practice. 
I think that was one of the things I wanted to drive home. I think it was a really good way to kind of end out here is that, you know, from re uh, I, I'm, I'm a, I would say uh, in, uh, a novice at Eliotitian, but, you know, uh, reading Robert's work and, and some of the other uh, regular studies that I, that I read is that we are potentially at risk for a really big inflection point of, as you said, steroids is an acceleration of what we're already experiencing. And so as a mental health provider to the community that that we partner with oftentimes to try to support. It's like, how do we get prepared? And I think that was one of the big take homes I wanted here. And so uh, what I'm hearing potentially from a socioeconomic perspective is that we're basically at a kickoff to what we thought 2020 was not so hot that it may be uh, not getting in, in, the, in the best area, but on a positive note, eventually we'll turn up uh, to keep help out there. Uh, and that there'll be a greater need probably in many different ways from behavioral health health perspective. And uh, I think that's uh, invaluable. And I'm, I'm really appreciative and excited that you were able to kind of come here today. And I think shine a light in, uh, at least in a mental health field that I think uh, wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't have a way of making uh, sense of what's happening. And I thought this would be very important. So I appreciate uh, uh, the Socioeconomic Institute as well as yourself for be willing to do this today. Really appreciate that. Kevin, thank you so much. It's it's been a pleasure to be here, and just just to end on a to to echo that that positive note that you're you're talking about. It, negative mood trends can be super unpleasant, but they are less unpleasant for those who are ready for them and prepared. And just because the rest of society is having a difficult time, and even though an individual might be having a difficult time, um, if you're prepared for it and you understand why it's happening and what it is exactly that you're living through, you at least have some kind of a rock some sort of a foundation that you can use to navigate those times. There's plenty of ways for an individual to to survive and, and thrive in these sorts of negative mood environments. That's one reason why uh, about a year, 18 months ago, we, we came out with a webinar called Your Best Bear Market Business Opportunities, because we want people to understand that that negative mood Trends can be unpleasant, they can be difficult, but they also present a unique set of opportunities that you can capitalize on if you're aware of them. So uh, there's, there's plenty of, of, of reason to be, be hopeful and to be resilient in those times and preparation uh, is the key. For anybody that would like to learn more about socioeconomics or what your offerings you have to get them prepared, uh, how can they find you? The best way is to go to the website. It's socionomics.net, S-O-C-I-O-nomics.net. You can also find us on Twitter at Socionomics. Wonderful. Kevin stole my last question. We want to make sure that our listeners uh, definitely have information on how they can contact you and the magazine and learn more. So thank you so much for being here with us, Matt. Uh, we greatly enjoyed this and it's probably very eye-opening for our listeners. So we, we really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you everyone for tuning in for this week's episode of The Barrier Breakdown. As always, you can find us on our YouTube channel, as well as we invite you to subscribe and comment uh, your favorite part of the podcast on each of the postings. You can also find our podcast on Podbean and Spotify. And also if you could like us on Apple so that others in the field could also um, see our podcast, that would be wonderful. You can also find more information about Cognitive Behavior Institute on our website, www.cbicenterforeducation.com, where we have information about our upcoming low-cost, robust continuing education credits and courses 
for folks in the behavioral health field. So thank you so much, Kevin and Matt, for being here with us today. And thank you to our listeners for the Barrier Breakdown. And we'll see you next time. Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Barrier Breakdown, Disrupting Mental Health Podcast. Check out our website at cbrcenterforeducation.com for more information and to learn about upcoming continuing education events.